0: Happy Friday, folks. Senior Editor Mackenzie Taylor here on another edition of the Texans Weekly Roundup. Today, our team discusses a press conference with Governor Abbott and a litany of other GOP governors at the Texas border, which our reporter, Hayden Sparks, gives a firsthand account of. The latest on the legal challenges to the heartbeat bill. Updates on efforts to finalize redistricting maps in the legislature. Why lawmakers are still talking about the power grid. Candidates lining up to challenge Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. The House and Senate at odds over a new agenda item from the governor comparisons between schools with and without mask mandates, a recap of the debacle in Del Rio, a GOP Texas senator receiving opposition from Trump, and an update on the Sanctuary City for the Unborn movement. Thanks for listening. We hope you learn a thing or two along the way and enjoy your weekend. Hello, hello, Mackenzie Taylor here with an intrepid team of reporters. We've got Daniel Friend, Hayden Sparks, Isaiah Mitchell, and Brad Johnson.
1: You did that in the exact order that I thought you would do it.
0: Yeah, it's just shocking, I know. I just go around the room. Yeah,
2: Intrepid I'm... is one of those words that is not an insult, but sounds like an insult.
0: Does it? <laughs>
2: I mm-hmm. think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, Brad, I'll uh, let you determine what that no. meant. Yeah. <laughs>
3: the shoe fits,
0: huh? <laughs> um, I'm just glad we have Hayden back in the office after a, a trip yesterday down a, to the border
3: a treacherous drive a treacherous drive from austin to mcallen yeah i'm kidding it wasn't very treacherous just okay i was like long
0: my eyes widened and i got a little nervous i was like what happened that you didn't tell me it was fine
3: no it was it was a nice drive okay
0: that's that's good. Well, on that note, we're going to get right into our content this week. Hayden, let's start with you about that trip, but you went down to the border this week, like we already said, to cover a press conference between the governor and other governors as well that came down to talk about the border crisis. What was the atmosphere of the press conference beforehand, and where exactly did this happen?
3: Well, this press conference was different than the last couple that we've been to. There was one with President Trump in... During the summer, and another one with almost 20 United States senators in March that I attended. And this one occurred at the same location as that one in March, but it was a little bit different logistically. Uh, It was at Anzaldos National Park in, or not National Park, but Anzaldos Park in Mission, which is in the McAllen area. And it was not, it was near the Rio Grande, uh, the Rio Grande River, but not on the, bank of the river like it was in march this was uh, in a field that was near the park and there was a heavy <laughs> national guard presence so this was Shocker. very much yes it was a show of force uh, for the governor's office they had uh, humvees and state trooper vehicles and a semicircle and uh, of course our
0: um, around where the conference was around where the press conference was yes so it that was that...
3: the backdrop for the The press conference. So the governor was facing the media and behind him uh, was a line uh, or a a semicircle of of vehicles and service members who were there to show that the governor has deployed uh, the Texas national guard and state troopers to the border as part of operation Lone Star. And it was very different than in March when us senators were pretty much on the river and that when they finished their tour, they came out and spoke to the press on the dock that it was a little bit more there. Uh, the setting was seemed a little bit more, planned uh, than the one in march um but the security seemed more intense at this one than it was in the, the past the u.s
0: senators yes it would, that
3: was interesting to me uh, you had a large or you had a, a good uh number of um, american governors there and uh this was uh beforehand they were they were Disgu- they were discussing the border crisis with one another and um some came on helicopters i didn't see who all deplaned the helicopters uh, but this was. Uh, Do you still
0: deplane if it's a helicopter?
3: You know. I think so. I think that applies to all aircraft.
0: I think you're probably right. right. I just, yes. just curious. Okay, continue. Um,
3: but that was the setting for this this press conference. It was very much. Uh, I heard one reporter say it looked like a scene from Apocalypse Now. I think that's probably overstating <laughs> it a bit. Uh, but there was a heavy military and police presence at this event, and uh, you know we had to have our. Press, creden- press credentials ready when we got there, and uh, they were checking people off the list before they even let us on the premises. RSUP
0: beforehand. Correct. Yeah.
3: Uh, and, and before in March, and um, it, the, the security wasn't quite as heavy as when Daniel and I went down for President Trump's border wall event. Um, you know, we didn't have to be bussed there or anything, but uh, they, they wouldn't even let vehicles onto the the premises before showing RSVP and making sure we were cred- credentialed and everything.
0: Talk to us a little bit about the dynamic between the governors and their interactions at the at the conference or beforehand.
3: It was interesting because they almost had a team huddle beforehand. <laughs> they got together and... And these are
0: all GOP governors, they right? Are, they are. They're all, all Republican
3: governors. And in terms of... Uh, which governors were there. We had Governor Abbott, of course, and then we had Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt. We also had Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, and I'll talk in a second about how it was interesting which governors uh, actually spoke at the event. Um, But they met beforehand with Texas Department of Public Safety Director Steve McCraw, and he has been the point person for Operation Lone Star and a lot of the border security efforts uh, that have been that had marked Abbott's administration and they conferred with each other and the Border Patrol Union president, uh, Brandon Judd, uh, prior to the press conference. And so they had an opportunity to visit with each other. And uh, notably, Arizona's governor, Doug Ducey, was there and he is very much aligned with Abbott on the state level effort against illegal immigration. He was the one to speak at the conference right after Abbott, and he indicated that the situation, the border crisis in Arizona is as bad as it is in Texas, which, of course, here we've been focusing on how it has affected Texas, but he is eager to talk about border security as well. But prior, they they almost seemed like they were catching up like friends. They're very uh, much aligned on this issue, and even the the governors uh, that... There there are governors that were not there who are also aligned with this group uh, for border security, more than half. There are 26 governors, they said, who are uh, committed to this issue and to fighting this issue on the state level.
0: Talk to us a little bit about the Q&A with the governors. What kind of comments did they have to make, and particularly about one Biden appointee?
3: The press is usually confrontational <laughs> on this issue, especially with uh, Republicans, But he over this event was, and in in a way, overshadowed by the, of course, the shooting at Timber Lake High School in Arlington. Of course, we're all praying for the recovery of the people affected by that. Um, but Abbott was asked if his border, um, if his border press conference with these governors was more of a photo op for a potential uh, presidential run. And he didn't answer that head on in terms of the presidential run, but he talked about, um, That he and and Governor Ricketts, who is uh, the governor of Nebraska, who spoke, talked about how you cannot deny that there is a border crisis. And while he didn't address whether or not he would run for president or whether this was part of that, he um, said that any and all action uh, would be taken to address the the number of illegal crossings at the state level. He was asked specifically about closing down ports of entry, uh, but he said that... uh, most illegal crossings occur between points of entry, so it didn't seem like he was ready to commit to additional actions that he's taken. This was more uh, about hindsight and looking back at some of the things he's done, Governor Abbott has done. One of the most fierce criticisms that Abbott offered at this at this conference during the Q&A is his statement that Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, he all but called him a liar. He said that he is continuously misleading the American public on this issue, and he called into question his competence. He said that the word he used is disaster. Abbott said he should be investigated by Congress, and that he should resign, more or less, because of the way this has turned out. Um, But those... Those are the highlights of some of his criticism of Biden and uh, of his of his overview of his border security actions.
0: Did all of the governors get to speak and were there any major players who did not speak or weren't in attendance?
3: Well, I mentioned Governor Ducey spoke right after Abbott, but there were other governors there, including uh, Brian Kemp of Georgia, Brad Little of Idaho. Kim Reynolds of Iowa, Greg Gianforte of Montana, Pete Ricketts of Nebraska, Mike DeWine of Ohio, and Kevin Stitt of Oklahoma, uh, in addition to Mark Gordon of Wyoming. Interestingly enough, governors Ricketts and Reynolds spoke, Nebraska and Iowa, but the governor of Oklahoma didn't speak, which of course is our northern neighbor, and Governor Kemp didn't speak, and he's uh, through a a Republican governor who presides over a very populated state, Georgia, and I'm sure that they've been affected by fentanyl overdoses as well, Atlanta area, I'm sure. And that was the theme of the remarks of, of the governors who were able to speak about how illegal immigration affects their states and drug trafficking and human trafficking affects their states. So they were all uh, they were friendly with each other at this at this event, but not not everyone had a chance to speak from the podium, and uh, of course, Director McCraw and um, the National Border Patrol Council President Brandon Judd, as I mentioned before, spoke to the media and addressed some of the border um, crisis issues, and Governor DeWin said at least 80% of the overdose deaths in Ohio are due to fentanyl. He did make sure to mention that. And there was one person who was originally slated to attend Governor Christy Noam of South Dakota, but she later was, they, when they, followed up with the uh, details of the event. She wasn't on the list anymore. So I called and asked her office why she wasn't, why she was taken off the list and they didn't get back with us. So we're still not sure why governor Noah backed out of the event. Uh, But ultimately they laid out uh, what they called a 10 point plan. Um, But these items were primarily things that they have already advocated in the past. um, And, such as uh, continuing title 42 and securing the border with additional federal resources. But all of these uh, things were with the backdrop of, um, of the Del Rio surge. And at this event, there was not the cast of state legislators and members of Congress that there were at, at Trump's border wall event during the summer. So those are the things that made this event different than those in the past. and, we'll have to see if the Biden administration ultimately acts on any of those 10 points they laid out.
0: Yeah, I'd be shocked if they did, but who knows, right? Even from a political standpoint, there's not too much there to gain for the Biden administration from from that perspective. Thank you, Hayden, for covering that for us. Uh, We'll continue to keep an eye on all of that. Um, Isaiah, we're going to come to you. Shocker, but the heartbeat bill is back in the news. Let's get the big news out of the way. First, what happened with the Heartbeat Act on Wednesday?
4: so federal judge robert pittman issued a preliminary injunction that halts enforcement of the Harpeat act and this is part of the lawsuit against texas from the biden administration this is not the case between the group of abortion providers and the state mainly the state court system that nearly went to the supreme court and is now proceeding at the fifth circuit court of appeals however the two cases are intertwined pittman was the same judge in that case before it went to the fifth circuit and he partially used the fifth circuit's reasoning For accepting the appeal to issue his injunction.
0: What do you what do you mean by that? How does the injunction work?
4: So the Biden administration requested an injunction against private citizens, which Pittman granted. And the reason for that was because of everybody knows by now how the Heartbeat Act is enforced is through private lawsuits. So it bars state judges and clerks from hearing or even accepting lawsuits under the Heartbeat Act, and it also stops private individuals from pursuing those lawsuits. This is related to the other challenge to the Heartbeat Act. It's not the Fifth Circuit. After passing through Pittman's court, because that case involved a private defendant, Markley Dixon, whom the abortion provider saw as a likely enforcer of the act. The Fifth Circuit accepted his appeal, along with the state defendants, because it said that the Heartbeat Act made state and private actors inextricably intertwined.
0: So let's talk about the state level for a second. Talk to us about what happened with Planned Parenthood's challenge at the Supreme Court of Texas with the Heartbeat Act.
4: Right. So this is a totally different case. It was going on in state court. Uh, Planned Parenthood, like uh, 13, not 14, other plaintiffs had sued Texas Right to Life, a prominent pro-life lobbying group which had encouraged citizens to sue into the Heartbeat Act once it was passed. The state Supreme Court denied Planned Parenthood's request to unbind their lawsuit against Texas Right to Life from the other 13 similar cases against them. All of these 14 lawsuits in total came from groups or people attempting to challenge the Heartbeat Act in state court, but also were to shield themselves from enforcement lawsuits by Texas right to life. So the group moved to consolidate all these cases, which in turn moved them out of Travis County district court and into a statewide court. So that for one, slowed down Planned parenthood's lawsuit and all these 13 others. And also you can do the math on a move from an Austin court to a Texas statewide court, the multi-district yeah. litigation panel do the math on how favorably that will work out
0: yeah, for planned Parenthood. probably not so not so great for planned parenthood um well isaiah thank you for covering that for us we'll continue to watch how this all shakes out there's a lot of there's just a lot of action and movement around the heartbeat act all together daniel we're going to come to you and talk about the redistricting battle um all sorts of things happening and it's becoming a little more politically contentious but talk to us about the texas senate map that was voted on earlier this week what was the outcome of that
1: Yes. So we've talked about the Senate map and all the other maps on previous podcasts. The Senate map was actually voted on uh, this week, like you said, and it was voted in favor of in a 20 to 11 vote. Um, You know, when you first see that vote, you see uh, 2020, which is above the number of Republicans in the Senate. So you know that there's at least two Democrats who voted for it, but it turns out there are actually three Democrats who voted for it and one Republican who voted against it. Spicy. Uh, So those three Democrats are all border Democrats, Senators Chuyo Hinojosa, uh, Judith Zafarini, and Eddie Lucio Jr. They all voted in favor of the bill. And then uh, one Republican, Senator Kel Seliger, up from Amarillo, voted against it. Um, He had some issues with the the changes to his district, which we'll get into later because that is a whole nother story entirely. (laughs) Um, Also spicy. Yes. But going back to the Dems, uh, even though that they did vote uh, in favor of this bill, they provided a statement in the journal uh, regarding their record of the vote, and this was actually all the Dems, Democrats, the, the 13 Democrats in the Senate uh, included this, and they said any of our, our votes in this process, whether it was the, the final vote like this or even votes on certain amendments, uh, doesn't show that they... Uh, affirm all aspects of the bill, and they're especially critical of the changes in Senate District 10 in Tarrant County.
0: Yeah, so give us a quick recap of those changes made to SD10 um, and the rest of the map, too. But SD10 has been the center of a lot of controversy, even in the past redistricting cycle, so this is nothing new.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. SD-10 is definitely going to be the focal point again. Uh, There was a big lawsuit last time uh, with Wendy Davis, and she was actually pretty successful in uh, keeping the map uh, the way that it had been before 2011. Um, And so the Republicans have come back this time. They're doing it a little bit differently. Um, You know, the numbers are not quite what they were in 2011. Uh, The changes are not quite that much, uh, especially in regards to the demographics of the district. But it does change the the partisan leaning of the seat so that it's not this uh, kind of toss-up purple seat, but more of a uh, a solidly red, safely red uh, Senate district, which would uh, pull in a lot of Republican votes, not just from Tarrant County, but also from a bunch of rural surrounding counties. So it reaches out and pulls those in to to shift it red. Um, Now, something interesting that they did do on the floor in regards to Senate District 10 is it's in Tarrant County. Um, the changes that had already been proposed would add Parker County to it, which is where um, State Representative Phil King is from, and he is actually running for this seat now, kind of launched a campaign uh, on the basis, assuming that this map is going to go through. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, the head of the Senate, um, also endorsed him, and so... Uh, there was another candidate who is uh, potentially going to join the race that a lot of people were calling for him to join, and that'd be representative David Cook from Mansfield. But something interesting that they did on the floor was basically completely draw Mansfield out of the district, uh, which I don't know exactly I think there's a small little portion of Mansfield that might still be in there um, but it'll likely draws uh, representative Cook out of that district so he can't run for that. Um, I almost said open seat. <laughs> it's <laughs> technically not open, but in Republicans' eyes it will be. <laughs>
0: yeah, they're they're seeing this as as, as fresh uh fresh meat, basically. Yeah, let's, let's get down to business.
1: Yeah. Um now I think one of the interesting parts on the Senate floor, uh, one of the Democrat senators was asking uh Senator Huffman, the, the chair of the redistricting committee whose bill this is, was asking if it was going to uh basically give up um in her pals seat in sd-10 she's like well it depends on what the voters decide you know the, yes, the classic response of so, course everybody knows that this is going they're trying to turn this into a red district there's no secret there but of course rhetorically they will dance around that yes um now, the other changes that were made uh, to the map, of course, we've talked about this previously, Senate District 24, uh, which is Senator Don Buckingham's seat. She's leaving. She's not going to be in this district anymore. It's actually going to now shift down to help out a former state senator, Pete Flores, and give him an opportunity to run for an open, safely red seat. Um, the other changes that were made, of course, it did shore up a lot of um, support for incumbents. Uh, one of the big takeaways, I think, watching redistricting this session, uh, in some sessions Republicans will go out there and they make it a priority for the party to pick up as many seats as possible. We're not seeing this this time in the chamber, any in in either chamber. There is, uh, of course, some some consideration given to that, and uh, Republicans do want to give. Something to the party like SD10 But overall, both maps In the House and the Senate and Congressional Is really about shoring up the support for the incumbents And and bolstering them So what this map does is definitely Shores up the Republican votes for incumbents Shores up also the blue votes for Democrats And that includes the three border um, Democrats that we talked about Now the interesting thing The Democrat who actually loses some Democratic votes would be uh, Senator Lucio, but in a way that actually supports him because uh, he often gets a lot more challenges from the left than he does from the right. Yeah, particularly uh, in that district. Yeah, Yeah. those are the big changes.
0: Now talk to us about, you know, what the next steps in the process might be as the Senate has already passed this bill. So tell us where the maps go from here. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. So real quickly, just like any other piece of legislation, it still has to go through the House. They still have to sign off on it. Uh, Traditionally, Senate maps don't really change in the House. The House kind of does hands off and the Senate does the same with the House map. Um, The only changes that we might see is, you know, if the Senate says, hey, we need to make some more small adjustments, they might tack on an amendment. Um, But that probably won't. I mean, there won't be any major changes I don't expect. I could be wrong. Um, And Democrats will certainly try to to push amendments, especially with SD10. Um, But it will go through the legislature in the House and then uh, be agreed to, and then it goes to the governor. The governor still has to sign it, just like any other bill previous uh, decades the state has been required to obtain pre-clearance from the federal government for the maps to go into effect. That's no longer the case, uh, but that doesn't stop lawsuits from happening. There yeah. will be lawsuits. There already are lawsuits. Um, and so, it wouldn't be surprising to see an injunction from a, a district federal court saying, you can't use this map, then that'll be appealed. The appellate Court will probably strike that down, probably go up to the Supreme Court. Who knows what'll happen after that?
0: <laughs> well, I think this whole process is interesting, too, because you have legislators very much uh, redistricting for the short term right Mm -hmm. so if there's somebody specifically who lives a precinct or two away they're going to you know district that person out of any any sort of uh, contention so they're dealing with the short term as well but then they're also looking at long term and thinking okay well how is the state you know uh, demographics changing how can we shore up our majority for future legislatures so it's an interesting combination a very short term Mm -hmm. sometimes petty uh, you know map drawing and trying to shore up support for future legislatures Because Republicans are in the majority and they're trying to make sure that they stay that way. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Well, let's talk about the House. Now, uh, as seems to be the habit with the legislature, the House is a little bit behind the Senate. Um, Where are we at with the House maps?
1: So the House maps still haven't gone to the floor. Um, That will happen next week on Tuesday. Uh, But it was approved by the House Redistricting Committee earlier this week in an 8-7 to vote. Uh, That's party line vote. And uh, in that process, there were also several amendments that were adopted to the map, so some changes since we last talked about it. Um, some of those amendments would include, uh, I think that the biggest, the biggest one to not bury the lead would be the changes <laughs> in Collin County. Um, this is the only change that will really affect the uh, final partisan makeup of the legislature in the next uh, regular session which, uh, originally with the first map that had been introduced, it would make all these seats in Collin County red, um, pretty much a, a safely Republican seat with around, I would say like 55 to 57%, um, leaning Republican in most of these, these districts, uh, the new map, which apparently was agreed to by all the delegation in Collin County, which they're all Republican right now, um, But the map that they agreed to, which also adds in a seat, would actually turn in one of those open seats and make that uh, probably pretty competitive and slightly leaning blue. It's possible that a Republican could win in 2022. It really depends on who comes out to vote. If we have another, uh, you know, bitter work factor like in 2018 that brought out a lot of Democrat voters, um, if there's something like that, it could definitely go blue. Uh, So it does lean slightly toward Democrats, but it'd be a toss up. Yeah. So that would actually be the biggest change in the map, partisan wise. There are also a bunch of other smaller changes. Um, one of the ones that was contested by Democrats was uh, changes made to uh, Representative Hugh Shine's district up in like the Temple and Colleen area. Uh, the legislature had originally, with the first map, um, they were opting to shore up support for uh, Representative Bad brad buckley um who is also in that neighborhood and give him uh, some more of the red votes from representative hugh shine uh, but that also brought shine's number of republican votes down the amendment that was adopted uh, in the committee would actually make Buckley's seat the more purple district this time uh, i think it builds him up a little bit more than what it had been uh, but it also takes away uh, a lot of the democrat votes that shine was given um now that was contested by Democrats because uh, apparently they were splitting some of the, the black communities in Colleen, uh, which they say you know that's illegal uh, is what they're saying. So we'll imagine there'll be some more opposition to that so it'll probably come up in lawsuits too if this continues to go through. Um, some other small changes, uh, there's a swap in Travis County between uh, Representative Vicki Goodwin and Representative Donna Howard's district so that they would be put back into more of the area of Austin that they had represented. Mm. Um, and then they also renumbered HD 60 and 61. Um uh, I believe sixty-one was Representative Phil King's district. He, he actually got paired with Rogers, um, but of course, King is running for the Senate, so his seat is going to be open. It and so provides more flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they'll just give Rogers his old number, keep that the same, a little bit less complicated. Um, and they also the the. Members of the House committee also rejected uh, some Democratic proposals uh, to, to make some changes in San Antonio and the Rio Grande Valley, um, and they also rejected some changes that would have probably uh, flipped back the seats for Representative Michelle Beckley and Representative James Talarico. Um, those were both counties in or districts in more Republican counties that had turned blue, and so Republicans in this map are trying to turn those back red. So. There we go. Yep. Those are the changes for now. Yep. And as
0: you said, this will be brought to the floor this coming Tuesday, and we'll see what happens there. But as in, you know, the Senate had their process. The House will be much more fiery. There will be much more uh, debate, mm-hmm. and it will likely take a much longer process for that to be worked through. And Daniel. probably some tears too. <laughs> you, you never know. There,
1: there were some in the committee hearing. So
0: okay, so we we have the precursor. Yes. We know. We know. We we have the 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 prequel okay wonderful well, thank you daniel um, for breaking that down for us brad let's talk about ERCOT. um shocker but as temperatures drop finally it's fall here in texas even though you may not know it by walking out your front Hopefully door they drop soon. yeah <laughs> they're starting to on any given day it might bit. drop like 15 degrees yeah. which is just wonderful um what has the state done to prevent another cold weather disaster like that that occurred in february
2: so, this entire summer, there have been a lot of deliberations, both within the PUC, within ERCOT, within the legislature. Um, on you know what what to do, how to prevent this next thing from happening. Uh, the biggest thing that has been done so far is designating the um, the wellheads and the pipelines all as critical infrastructure. There was an oversight during the the February storm; uh, many of them were not designated critical infrastructure and so they had their power cut and so you had this compounding effect of uh you can't get the gas to the the generators to create electricity because the electricity has been cut off on the front end of this so Um, That was a very simple thing that was done. Um, You know, that is something that was uh, a man-made problem. Uh, It's a governmental oversight, uh, but that has been fixed, and I think that will do a lot to prevent uh, certainly things from getting as bad as they were back in February. But um, you know a lot of other stuff. There's there's new oversight. There's this new Energy Reliability Council that is supposed to oversee the direction of these uh, of the power grid and and different policies that may or may not be implemented. Uh, one big thing that's going to happen in December is the Public Utility Commission is going to issue its uh, decision, its ruling on how to um, reshape the ERCOT market. Uh, specifically, they want to incentivize more dispatchability. And by that, uh, they mean power that can be turned on or called upon in a short amount of time rather than be you know left to the whims of the weather. Um, and so, obviously, that stuff can still fail as we saw back in February, but uh, they want to incentivize more of that. Um, you know, various other things have been have been pushed, such as uh, a more higher level reform of uh, keeping all the PUC officials in Texas, um, keeping the ERCOT board members in Texas. You have that's in-state residency. I don't know how much that's going to do, uh, but it is going to ensure that everyone is in the same boat if things hit the fan. Yeah. Uh, but the big thing is going to be what comes out of this. Um, market reshaping discussion and we don't really know they're keeping their cards close to the chest but um, you could see some sort of uh, financial incentive to build more uh, you know dispatchable power and does renewable power fit into that at all during the hearing that uh, I wrote about that happened last week but we wrote about this week um there's a lot of argument over that uh, how much does does renewable energy deserve to be called that some people uh, believe not at all others believe it should Uh, deserve some consideration and there was one concession made that if it's you know in battery storage then that would count as dispatchable because you can flip that on Um, but one thing notable with battery storage is that it's very limited right now Um, the technology the amount we can store is not even close to the amount that you need to power the grid so all those things are in discussion right now Uh, once we hit December we'll really start to see what the PUC has decided here
0: so really the moral of the story is we know what they're discussing the big broad 30,000 foot view yeah. but we don't necessarily know what they're coming to the table with in terms of actual solutions yes right and part of that we already do know the legislature you know put forward some of their own reforms mm-hmm. um but i mean is that basically why people are still talking about the grid is because yeah. we're, we're still in the process of figuring out these solutions and now it's up to the agencies themselves to kind of put these into place
2: yeah and there was the, the winterization mandate and that is at various levels of uh, accomplishment. um the gas side the uh the the railroad commission is not required to enforce that um, at the current date like it is in on the generation side and so um, we'll see how much progress is made on that yeah. uh, i think you know the larger thing in this whole discussion is that what are the chances that we face another storm like we did This past year, Um, not just how cold it got, but how long it lasted. That was the real thing that broke the grid uh, that Texas was not prepared for. And these reforms are hoping they're hoping that uh, it will prepare Texas for that. Uh, They hope that better management of the electricity um, will will better prepare, prepare Texas. But really um the odds that we face another storm like we did are are slim to none
0: yeah well and you know a lot of texans are rightfully saying it was unacceptable what happened in february Mm -hmm. the response was you know uh, even just the fact that the grid could be that vulnerable to this kind of weather even though it's so rare that it happens in and of itself is a failure, right? right? But okay, when will it happen again? A lot of this political response is due to pressure and it's costing a lot of money. Yeah. So there's and always was, that side as well, right?
2: It was horrible. It was horrendous. And that is why people are still talking about it. And, you know, probably will take a couple winners to get yeah. through before people, um, you know, let it go a little bit and um, it certainly won't happen this winter. It'll yeah. be on the back of everyone's mind, in the front of everybody's
0: minds. I mean, a lot of general general election opponents to statewide officials are bringing this up as a reason why mm. they're running as Democrats in Texas. Yeah. Um, citing Republican, uh, the failure of Republican leadership, whether or not that is legitimate or not is up to each voter, that's the but, point, but yep. that's a talking point, right? We're going to see this going into 2022. Well, thank you, Bradley, for that. Hayden, let's talk about, speaking of statewide elections, the lieutenant governor's race we've not talked about this much up until this point but talk to us about who the candidates are and what the tone of the race has been so far
3: well one of the primary issues in the lieutenant governor's race will likely be border security and i should mention that the governor's office just announced that they are appealing fema's decision to deny a state of disaster for the border crisis and that leads us into the four candidates who are running in running for lieutenant governor next year and that would be dan patrick so far is a. Uh, he's the incumbent. He's been, uh, the incumbent for, uh, a number of years now, since 2015, he was elected pretty decisively in 2014, but then by a much slimmer margin in 2018, when he almost lost to Mike Collier, 51% to 49%. Uh, Patrick has been, um, upping the ante for advancing conservative policy priorities, including even willing to go to battle with Texas house Republicans over what he perceives as, uh, them being less willing or eager to uh, advance those legislative items. And Patrick also has a long career in media and he, I think relies a lot on those instincts when judging his political future. Uh, So that's Dan Patrick, who's the incumbent in the office, the Republican incumbent. And then as, recently as tuesday we have Tracy Bradford who has emerged as one of has emerged as the uh, Republican primary challenger for Abbott she's running on for, a,
0: for uh, Dan Patrick pardon <laughs> me for
3: Patrick not Abbott uh, important distinction she's running on a platform of liberty and limited government she was the president of Texas Eagle Forum and is the vice president of Christians Engaged uh, so she has launched her candidacy and the Republican primary uh, hopefully will be happening in March and depending on um, if everything goes as planned with, with redistricting. Um, but once those primaries wrapped wrap up, then we'll have democratic uh, a democratic opponent for the successful Republican candidate. And so the, those are the two uh, prominent Republican candidates, Dan Patrick and Tracy Bradford. Then on the Democratic side, we have Matthew Dowd, who is, of course, the former a former strategist for uh, President Bush, who was incidentally governor of Texas before he became president. And he is running on a platform of opposing what he calls uh, a culture war. Uh, Mike Collier, the other Democrat, has also said that as well. Um, but what's interesting is Dowd wrote a an op-ed or an opinion piece when he was at ABC News and the sentiment of this piece was and this this is the demographic he named was that white male Christians should not be in leadership as much was the thirty thousand foot view of that. And that white male Christians should step back and give Uh, more space for uh, women and minorities to take leadership positions. So this, that isn't, and and this isn't like he wrote this in in high school or college and then years later is now um, running for a statewide political office. He wrote this three years ago around the time that Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed by the U.S. Senate and now is launching a candidacy for lieutenant governor. So it will be interesting if... Bradford ends up getting nominated as the Republican candidate. That'd be quite ironic to have a, a Democrat who's taken this position then running against a female Republican candidate. But of course, that'll depend on the outcome of the primaries. And then we have Mike Collier, who's a businessman who came within 400,000 votes of unseating Lieutenant Governor Patrick in 2018. And he's running on liberal issues such as uh, supporting climate change reform or things to address climate change and uh, he also supports roe v wade and abortion rights as well so they are supporting that's the, the dem- field democratic uh, causes he's also and, uh, talked a lot about the grid as yes. you know, we mentioned yes. a couple yep.
0: minutes ago that's who i was thinking of when yes. i mentioned that yes.
3: earlier it's it's almost every other press release <laughs> says fix the damn
0: grid yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly
3: so, um, and as Brad just mentioned, uh, that's probably going to be at the front of people's minds this winter, so yeah. <laughs> that'll be an important an important issue. Uh, and of course, it's that's going to be a bread and butter issue in Texas politics for a while, I think. Um, but those are the four candidates, and those are, are just a, a taste of where they stand on the issues.
0: Absolutely. And definitely, these three opponents right now that uh, the lieutenant governor has all in their own way have some sort of name ID with a portion of the voting populace, how for formidable they will be is yet to be seen um you know tracy bradford has uh, come out and it will likely be a challenge from the right um i'm sure the lieutenant governor is going to make note of the more conservative social policies he's pushed in comparison to the house throughout these legislative sessions for the past you know for his past four-year term we'll see how that ends up being part of the discussion and if bradford can raise money and actually pose a, a challenge to the lieutenant governor and these two democrats will be very very interesting to watch them uh, navigate the rhetorical battle as well but Hayden thank you for that Daniel we're going to come right to you talk about the house and the senate speaking of the house and the senate being on different pages the senate again has been quick to pass legislation this session these special sessions they've moved very quickly through the process and even started voting on an item that Abbott just added to the special session agenda uh, last week what was that item
1: So when uh, Governor Abbott added this to the agenda, Hayden actually wrote the article on this. Uh, And basically what it would do is uh, raise the penalty for illegal voting back up to a felony, uh, returning it to what it was before SB1, which was the major election integrity bill that the Republicans passed in the last special session. In that bill, there was a provision that actually lowered the the penalty for illegal voting, so uh, Governor Abbott has added it to the agenda to raise it back up to what it was, and uh, the Senate acted quickly on this. Um, I think he he put this on the agenda Thursday of last week, uh, and they filed the bill the day after. They had a hearing this week, and they voted it out already, Um, so now it's headed over to the House.
0: Now, talk to us about the support and opposition to this legislation. Is it similar to stances that folks took on the major election bill that was heard earlier this year and the <clears throat> subject that, uh, you know, made a lot of Democrats mm-hmm. want to flee the state?
1: Yes, I think for the most part, uh, and there is one huge caveat on there that we'll get to. Uh, but for the most part, yes, you know, people on the right see this as uh, something that's necessary to really kind of uh make sure that people aren't going out and voting illegally if they have this a uh, threat of a higher penalty if they know that they're gonna get a felony for doing this uh, they argue that it'll deter uh, more illegal voting um so uh you know uh, a couple quotes here uh one from coming from the right and then one also coming from the left where people are like no we shouldn't be doing this and uh Um, So Alan Vera, who has been very uh, outspoken with the whole election integrity legislation, he's involved a lot in Harris County and election reform. Is he uh, an activist? Is that his role? Yeah. He works with the Republican Party pushing for election reforms, Um, and he said at the hearing, he said, We believe the primary purpose of criminal penalties for serious violations of the Texas Election Code is as a deterrent. Uh, Those considering or planning serious violations of the code may be less likely to actually commit the offenses if they know there is a serious penalty attached to the violation they are considering. Um, other people on the left uh, really kind of scoff at this, this measure, and they say the bill was agreed to. Uh, you know, Why should we uh, go and change what you guys already agreed to? And uh, one person who testified, uh, James Slattery, who uh, I believe he's with the Civil Rights Defense Project, uh, an attorney, uh, more of an activist attorney type person. Uh, at the hearing, he said, it is richly ironic that during the debate on SB1 that supporters of SB1 routinely accused the opponents of the bill of not having read the bill. Yet some of those same reporters, supporters of SB1 now claim to be surprised that it contained uh, provisions reducing some criminal penalties related to voting. Uh, because some people have said that they really weren't – they thought it was a, a mistake that this lowering the penalty was included in the bill in the final version that was passed out. Um, and so he's kind of saying that's kind of ironic. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the two perspectives that we have.
0: So the perspectives are remaining largely the same. What about the division between the House and the Senate? What kind of chance does this bill have in the House? Yeah,
1: and that's the big caveat because the top member in the House, uh, Speaker Dave Phelan, has expressed opposition to the bill, uh, basically saying that we've already done this. We're going to focus on redistricting. That's it. Uh, and he said, "quote uh, With much acclaim from elected officials and voters, Governor Greg Abbott signed SB one into law. Now is not the time to relitigate and." said The House will remain focused on its constitutional obligation to pass redistricting maps, and members look forward to fulfilling this critical task. So, the bill is likely dead on arrival in the in the House uh, if speaker Feelin has his way which the speaker usually does
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's he has a, a lot of power in that chamber specifically well uh daniel thank you for that we will definitely keep an eye on uh that going forward isaiah let's talk about schools with and without mask mandates when comparing covid positivity rates how do texas public schools with mask mandates compare to those without them
4: yeah so overall from the beginning of this school year to the end of september 1.89% of students at schools with mask mandates, excuse me, mandates have tested positive compared to 2.93% of students at schools without mask mandates. So a difference of about 1% in positivity rate. And this data comes from schools themselves that they report to the state, and that's released in reports every week. There are a few gaps in it because for very small districts, um, once you get below a certain threshold of students, they hide the results in the local spreadsheet, but included in the overall count. But, um, when you're looking at the, all the local data collated, there'll be some schools that just don't have data there because it would be obvious which kid got COVID in right. a district of 15 people.
0: So. Right. There's a little bit of, of, uh, you know, discretion that has to be used. Now talk to us about statewide trends. Uh, how do those look for COVID infection in schools?
4: It's looking like they peaked, in around the beginning of September and have gone down since then. So if you look at the beginning of August, all up through August, you've got positive student cases increasing. And uh, then for the week of the 5th of September, that's when they're the highest. And they've been rising pretty, excuse me, lowering pretty steadily since then, uh, which is an encouraging trend.
0: Absolutely. Now talk to us about the risk that COVID uh, poses to children.
4: So according to state data, 88 Texans under the age of 20 have died with the disease since they began measuring, and that accounts for 0.14% of the state's total fatality count. A little over 700 and 700, 100 Americans have died with COVID-19, and out of those, the feds report that 499 of them were under the age of 18. Um, an interesting little fact that Time reported a little while ago is that fewer children under the age of 15 died in 2020 overall. Compared to prior years. So the child mortality rate actually went down over the course of 2020, even after accounting for COVID deaths. So overall, COVID presents a very small, vanishingly rare risk of death to children.
0: Thank you for reporting on that and parsing through that or parsing through that data for us, Isaiah. Hayden, let's talk to you. Let's do a little bit of a recap um, of the Del Rio situation that you have covered from the get go. But talk to us specifically about the condition of Haiti. Um, so many of those who were underneath the Del Rio International Bridge were from Haiti, were Haitians. Why were people so desperate to leave there? Um, talk to us, you know, a little bit through those details.
3: Well, I think it's safe to say that anyone would probably not choose Haiti as a place to live. It is a, a country ravaged by natural disasters and a kidnapping crisis right now. Their kidnapping rate has been through the roof, and of course, they their president was assassinated over the summer, so the, the nation itself is just in a state of disarray, which precipitated why individuals are are trying to get out of there, but that's not the entirety of the equation because many individuals who are or were in Haiti after they left in the 2010 earthquake. So many years ago, they went to Chile and Brazil and those countries, especially Brazil facilitated the uh, transport of Haitians to Brazil so they could have a better life where they weren't uh, starving or, or, facing the issues that go with living in a country where where hundreds of thousands of people died in an earthquake. And I know that there are disputed death tolls over the 2010 earthquake, but they had another earthquake in August, uh, making Haiti even more unlivable. And uh, of course, the United States, we've had our own problems with crime, and we, after the COVID-19 pandemic, undoubtedly have had our own economic challenges, uh, but of course, it is different for us, and we have more resources than than a country like Haiti, which I believe is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. So the the Associated Press summarized that the what they the what they reported as the well traveled route or the well worn route, I think is the term the AP used, uh, of my migration from um, Haiti to Texas was they. They flew to South America and then came up through Central America on foot and or by bus to Mexico and then would wait in the vicinity of the, the U.S.-Mexico border for a time to cross over. And that is the 30,000-foot the view of why they ended up so close to Del Rio and why they wanted to avoid deportation so badly. Talk to us real
0: fast about how many Haitians actually ended up in Del Rio.
3: Well, and and again, they're not all Haitian. So it's not a matter of, of you know, a hundred percent of these individuals, but Mayorkas, uh, secretary Mayorkas reported the Friday after all of this was starting to wind down that 30,000 people had been encountered since I believe September 9th, uh, early September, um, in the Del Rio area. Um, and the, but the encampment had about 15 or 16,000 people at any given time, uh, throughout that, that case, uh, that surge. And, um, Part of the fallout from this was Valverde County, um, their commissioner's court voted to, and the county attorney of Valverde explained to me that it wasn't voting to initiate a lawsuit, but it was voting to get together with other counties to see if there's interest in a lawsuit. Of course, I I can't get out of my head when I talk about lawsuits on the border now, that the U.S. Supreme Court has ordered the Biden administration to reinstate the migrant protection protocols. And they're still focused on trying to redraft the memo abolishing it so that they could get another bite at the apple of, of abolishing it. And they've said that they are making a good faith effort to restore it, but it's clear that they still want to tear the, the Remain of Mexico policy down permanently, and they're still trying to figure out a way to do that. So I, I think it'd be difficult for an organization to make a, a good faith effort to restore something that they are actively trying to abolish. Perhaps they are, and they're just working on it in different, uh, their order of operations is different, but uh, so I'm not sure how much of a lawsuit, an impact a lawsuit would have because that decision was last month, and then we had the Del Rio surge, so... um, One thing after another. One thing after the other, and so I'm not sure how much good a lawsuit would do, but that is part of the fallout of this surge. Are we headed for another surge like we saw in Del Rio? at at this point, I I don't see any indication. And of course, you know, I'm not a border security expert, but from what I hear from the people who are experts is that all signs point to yes. You know, uh, Chief Karish told me that uh, if the deportations only apply to Haitian illegal aliens, then that only mitigates that one crisis and it won't have any effect after that. Um, And the Border Patrol Union President Brandon Judd said at the the conference yesterday that uh, nothing has changed that would prevent another incident like Del Rio. In fact, mayorkas is, is reportedly concerned about there being three hundred fifty or four hundred thousand illegal crossings this month. Uh, so, and the Remain in Mexico policy has not been re implemented, which was a, a major part of, of deterring illegal crossings. So, the Biden administration may be. Uh, Perhaps they're making some progress on long-term things like working out policies of Central America. I know they've said that they have uh, um, that that's what, that's what they're working on. Also uh, the white house has contended that there's been a lot of talk among Republicans uh, about um, addressing this uh, crisis, but not not a lot of action. And of course some of Abbott's uh, Republican primary opponents uh, would agree with that. Uh, But uh, the the crisis itself really i I would say from my perspective shows no signs of turning a corner
0: well thank you for all your coverage of that issue hayden it will certainly be something that you know unfortunately we have to continue to cover daniel let's talk about a texas state senator who is in the news again and uh, really, kind of, is a lone wolf in the Senate in many ways. Kel Seliger, a Republican from West Texas, like you mentioned earlier, he was the lone Republican to vote against the Senate redistricting maps, and he also voted against an election audit bill this week. To top it off, President, former President Trump, uh, endorsed his opponent. Walk us through this drama and tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, these redistricting complaints that you alluded to earlier.
1: Yes. So uh, Kelton G. Seliger is his <laughs> full name, uh, and bring that up because it's it's kind of interesting that there's also a an unincorporated community up in the panhandle called kelton uh like his first name so and, and it all comes back to the town of kelton at least for this uh his, his redistricting vote uh because his big complaint with redistricting was that it took a lot of the counties up in the panhandle uh, not a lot just like probably like five or four or five, maybe six uh, counties up in the panhandle, including the one of Wheeler County, which is where Kelton is. Uh, And it would actually give that to SD 28, which is uh, the other West Texas Senate district uh, belonging to Senator Charles Perry. So, um, and in place of those panhandle uh, counties, uh, Seliger's district would get a lot more closer to the Permian Basin kind of more in the, the traditional West Texas uh, you know, west of Austin those those counties um, and so he, offered, he actually offered an amendment on the Senate floor uh, when it came to the floor and he was requesting that the Senate uh, shift those counties back around so that he gets more in the panhandle and less down in the Permian Basin um, but uh, that was Opposed by Senator Joan Huffman, and he ultimately pulled down the amendment, uh, saying that he didn't want to force uh, senators to make a tough vote. Um, But he also said on the floor, I believe, members, that really what this is about is to take counties out of the panhandle and move them closer to Midland because a member of the board of the Texas Public Policy Foundations is running. Now, Mm -hmm. uh, there is a actually he's a former board member of the of TPPF uh the think tank in Austin uh Kevin Sparks who is running for SD31 in in the Midland area as a republican in the, yes um as a republican against a sitting republican now Silliger hasn't actually announced that he's running for re-election he hasn't made that decision yet um but it's kind of presumed that incumbents will run unless they say otherwise um but uh, Seliger was saying that this is not about agriculture or oil and gas. He's saying this is really about a, a partisan, not a partisan, not even partisan. <laughs> it's it's, a, a, it's intrapartisan. Inter, an intrapartisan <laughs> fight to kind of push him out of the legislature um, and get someone new into his seat. Um, now, it's not news that he is voting against his party. He's done that uh, quite frequently in, in past years. He's actually rated as uh, the most liberal Republican in the Senate by Mark P. Jones uh, in his ranking uh, of members. And so, uh, you know, he is oftentimes on the outs of the party, but now he's really kind of getting pushed there, uh, and he's going to have a significant primary challenge.
0: Well, any GOP big-ticket item, you know, the lieutenant governor has his – majority of republican senators that he will deal with to try and get his items Mm -hmm. passed or even brought to the floor and seliger can be a wild card in that regard Mm -hmm. i mean even the property tax bill from previous sessions all all these different kinds of big items the lieutenant governor wants to pass seliger can be a wild card um and he's been very vocal about opposition to certain even social issues previously um, and just has a different a different leaning on some of these things speaking of which talk to us about the election audit bill
1: So just a little bit of background on this election audit bill. This is different. This is not the same bill as I was talking about earlier uh, that would increase the penalty uh, for voting. This is actually a bill to audit the 2020 election from Senator Paul Betancourt. Uh, He offered it in the previous uh, special session. It passed the Senate. It did not go anywhere in the House. Um... Now, former President Trump actually sent a letter to Governor Abbott asking him to put this back on the agenda for this special session, uh, urging him to do that. Abbott, uh, or the Secretary of State's office, then announced that it was going to do an audit of uh, four of the biggest counties in Texas. Uh, but Abbott has not added this item to the special session agenda. Uh, nonetheless, the Senate has decided to take this up and uh, approve this legislation once again. So Senator Paul Bedencourt filed this bill, which is actually explicitly mentioned in, um, in the president's letter to Trump, or in the president's letter to Abbott. He didn't <laughs> send one to himself. Um, and so... Uh, they voted on this, but there was one Republican who voted against it, and that was Senator Kel-Seliger. Um So, again, he's kind of voting against it. Now, why he was voting against it, um, it's not really clear. I haven't seen any statements. He, he didn't say anything on the floor when it happened. Um, now, it could be, you know, just because it's not on the special session agenda. And there's question about whether this would actually pass in the House, because I'm sure a point of order could be raised and uh, actually uh, agreed to because it's not on the agenda. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, has the lieutenant governor indicated that he wants Seliger replaced?
1: He hasn't said anything explicitly, um, but we know that uh, lieutenant governor has been very active in kind of orchestrating who he wants to be in the Senate in the next regular session. Uh, He has endorsed candidates in all the the, the two open seats and also in SD10, which is going to turn Republican if they have their way. And um, then you also have Kel Seliger's district, which, like you were mentioning, they kind of butt heads uh, on a lot of these big issues. And so Patrick uh, did say at an event in the Permian Basin uh, at, a, at a meeting, he was a keynote speaker, and he said that the Senate does need someone from the oil and gas industry, mm-hmm. uh, which Kevin Sparks, the the candidate who has Trump's backing, um, and apparently he's going to come out with a few more endorsements from uh, Selger's primary challenges from the last election, Um uh, pretty soon and so he he is in the oil and gas industry this could be who patrick was referring to who knows we'll see. and it is
0: notable that that lieutenant that the lieutenant governor was I, be, I believe it was the chairman for president trump's re-election campaign here in texas or i forget the exact title mm-hmm. but held a position of prominence in the president's campaign or former president's campaign again in in 2016 2016 and 2020 both um and the, you know trump endorsed mm-hmm. sparks so yes. interesting in that regard not necessarily tied but interesting mm-hmm. to note nonetheless thank you for that daniel isaiah let's talk about an uh, update on the sanctuary cities for the unborn here in texas three more towns voted to outlaw abortion in city limits where are they
4: uh the one that i find most interesting is impact it is just north of abilene and it has around 20 to 30 inhabitants So when it was added, it single-handedly shrank the average member population of this initiative from 10,000 people to about 9,800 people, which is just kind of funny to me. (laughs) Um, Brownsboro voted to outlaw abortion on August 16th. Impact voted September 11th. The most recent addition is the town of Nazareth. It is the northernmost sanctuary in Texas so far. Uh, It's a town in the panhandle of about 300 people. And they adopted the ordinance on October 5th. So those are the three, um, two West, one East.
0: Tell us a little bit about what happened in San Angelo.
4: Yeah, it was interesting. Um, the guy that has been spreading these ordinances around from town to town is Mark Lee Dixon. Uh, we mentioned him earlier in passing. He's a named defendant on the lawsuit of the abortion providers against the state court system. He's the only citizen involved in it. And, um, Anyway, his involvement in this story, like I said, is that he presents these ordinances from town to town, and um, he goes personally to all these towns, even Impact and uh, other such small towns, and he's had his eyes on San Angelo and Abilene and Odessa for some time, and um, has presented, or I guess pitched the ordinance to San Angelo a number of times already. And uh, just earlier this week, actually shortly after we published this piece, the San Angelo City Council instead of um, voting on the ordinance decided instead to pass a resolution in support of the heartbeat act, which is obviously not an enforceable law. And what's interesting about that is that the heartbeat act explicitly provides in one line, um, that it does not touch the ability of municipalities to regulate abortion more strictly than it does. So in other words, it strictly allows the sanctuary city for the unborn type ordinance. And, um, But San Angelo, indirectly speaking, Rejected that ordinance, yeah, in favor of this more symbolic resolution.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Well, Isaiah, thanks for covering that for us and continuing to keep an eye on, an eye on all of this. We appreciate it, boys. Let's talk about um, social media outages. We had Facebook and Instagram both go down for a long time, uh, for many hours this week, which was interesting. I think it was it was it Tuesday or Monday? Monday, Tuesday? I think it was Monday. Monday. Okay, I can't keep my days straight. I can barely keep my um, you know my own name straight as you all are fully aware but um what would the world be like post facebook that's our fun topic for this week hayden was this you was this, i think this was your topic wasn't it
3: it, it was my idea the other day yeah. after facebook went down it was however not my idea to destroy facebook so i'm gonna give got it
0: right those or, daniels or, that will, yeah. <laughs> I <plead> the fifth. <laughs> i plead the fifth um Got it. Well, walk us through your question, Hayden. What exactly are you getting at here?
3: Well, I think uh, my question is an important one (laughs) due to the number of friendships that have been destroyed by Facebook. Wow. And sounds like you have
2: some personal experience here.
3: I don't know what you're talking about. I'm kidding. Um, Facebook feeds into or well, we won't put all the blame on Facebook. We'll just say social media in general, but it brings the worst out of people at times. And that's why I think Facebook went on a campaign to try to restore its reputation. Oh, saw so those ads. Facebook
0: that- is this benevolent um, monstrosity that just decided to uh, you know allow folks to talk to their uncles in peace again.
3: It's a monstrosity for allowing them to talk to their own. Oh owners? no, I'm saying
0: it's a benevolent monstrosity that decided to shut itself down.
3: Yes. In, in well, favor of
0: allowing, you know, extended family relationships to flourish once again.
3: I, I don't I don't know if they shut themselves down <laughs> or who the prime suspect is uh. and what happened. I actually haven't read what what truly happened or it's probably a bold thing bold um assumption for me to assume that i would even understand why (laughs) facebook went down because i'm definitely not a tech person um but a world post facebook you might have a harder time keeping up with friends and family but there'd probably be a lot fewer political political arguments and um arguments over other silly things but that's
1: my take
0: yeah daniel
3: thoughts
1: i'm trying to think them (laughs) you're tr- <laughs> yes
0: um great brad
2: i think there is one premier benefit oh, gosh for facebook I already, committing
0: already i already hate whatever he's gonna say like i already hate it
2: since graduating oh. high school oh Lord. i have been contacted <laughs> by no fewer than half a dozen I guess, former friends for class, former high school classmates who are trying to recruit me for their danged pyramid schemes. (laughs) And it's always these super long messages. Hi, Brad, hope you're doing well, dude. We haven't talked in eight years has been that long i don't even know but anyway um i haven't talked to these people at all yeah and they're trying to would you like to earn some money on the side christ uh set your own hours blah blah, blah. like no dude no i don't i don't (laughs) want to do this i don't want to talk to you uh there's a reason that i haven't spoken to you in many years wow um this is sad this is
0: i think this is a lot about you brad does it yeah
2: Oh, is there just a large contingent of people that like getting these messages? I think there's like a large being recruited for
1: pyramid schemes. I, I think, think it would be <laughs> an Ohio thing because I don't really get these pyramid scheme invites. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I don't either.
1: Maybe you just had fewer know. friends in maybe, high school I was
0: like going to say, maybe we just weren't as I popular mean, in high we school. Were home school yeah, we were homeschooled, We totally were homeschooled, that's very true. popular, yeah. Yeah, Brad was. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, <laughs>
3: that's, that's definitely
0: true. I think Brad was pretty well in high me, school. That reminds me,
3: Brad. I've been meaning to tell you about this exciting investment opportunity <laughs> that I'm to get you <laughs> on board with. Just kidding. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, so my, Does that have
0: anything to do with air ventilation systems?
3: Huh. Thank you. I see what you did there.
0: Thank you. Appreciate that.
3: No, but I, I agree with you, Brad. P- Facebook gives you the wonderful opportunity of being contacted by people who otherwise would not have been able to find your contact information. Yeah. Like your phone numbers change, people move and but Facebook, one search and they know where you live, where you work. That's why on my Facebook, I, I well, I deleted Facebook in October and then I had started another account earlier this year and i set all of my settings so that you can only see my information unless you're uh, you can only see my information if i friend you of course mm. most people could find out uh, hmm. easily where i live and where i work online but yeah at least they won't find that out on facebook
2: <laughs> of, the, of the people that that messaged me most of them were this wasn't really a surprise it was exactly the kind of people you'd pick out before graduating, oh, these people are going to fall for pon- Ponzi oh schemes. gosh.
0: If they listen to this, Brad, that's going to be really harmful Not to them. Not a single bro. one of
2: them listen to this. <laughs> Not a single one. Um, but there was one guy with whom I played baseball growing up. Uh, Why does was... everything
0: he say sound pretentious? You know? How is that pretentious? Okay, just I keep understand. going. I keep
2: going. But I was very shocked to see this guy fallen so far from grace and joining this this parasitic organization call that uh, is... You know, so
0: aggressive. Me, so. You are so aggressive.
3: Watching mackenzie's facial expressions while brad talks is an emotional roller coaster <laughs> every time i open my mouth
0: oh my god it's just condescension
3: upon condescension i haven't
0: given you grief on this podcast in a long time i, I would like the record to reflect
3: bringing back the bashing brad segment you it's know, been dormant for a, been a while
0: a while and i missed it i
2: didn't realize you it's disagreed. i didn't, didn't realize you loved getting these
3: messages i from don't get them classmates. because my
0: friends don't uh, involve themselves in ponzi schemes bradley
3: are you saying you oh, have better Jesus. taste than friends? Yeah, I would just like
0: to say that, the you know, I don't have this problem. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Good talk. Thank you. Um, Daniel, yeah, do you have any more thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I don't think much would change. Okay, got- <laughs> I, I think people would find other ways to have their partisan fights. I think people would find other ways to contact people and find out about their birthdays and their... New kids and all this other stuff. Like, I think the Babylon Bee did a, a good report on this, where they're like, Utopia breaks out after Facebook goes down, and then at the end of the article, they say, at the end of this article, they they're saying that now people are discovering Twitter, and that's exactly <laughs> what would happen. That's and it just true. There's
0: always returns. an outlet. Yeah. Isaiah, thoughts?
4: You know, I kind of lean that way because human nature is human nature. It doesn't really change but I want, I, I don't think you can overlook how entire movements form on social media because people with wildly rare beliefs or thoughts all of a sudden are now not like, you know, one in a town of however many people, but there are 2000 in a world of however many billion, but you you can find those other 2000 people real easy on, you know, social anyway. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Um,
1: I mean, I think, that, I think that's true. And Facebook has certainly proliferated that, but I, I also think that even if you got rid of Facebook, we, we can't go back and undo it because there's going to be Reddit, there's going to be Twitter, there's going to be YouTube, there's going to be other places. Now already, the only way that we can, can take... actually do it is like if you just destroyed the internet, which that'd be nice. <laughs>
0: Isaiah would no longer have to have Twitter, and that would make him very happy. Yes. Well,
4: then you lose all your followers. <laughs>
0: oh, oh i like got a long 200. way to fall this is really brutal <laughs> all of you it's brutal out here um anybody get that reference no it's brutal out here brad you listen to olivia rodrigo you
2: should I have yes yes it's she, a she has a song i don't know what you're talking she about.
0: says it's brutal out here it's literally a song called brutal
2: oh well good for her
0: yeah okay well on that note um i would like to say that I would love if Facebook was gone because the people who wish you happy birthday on Facebook are the people that you don't know. It's like that random person you friended back in college that you had one class with spent one quarter with and don't know now or
1: but you would never know that they're thinking about you. That's so true.
0: But the happy, but the, but the token uh, timeline post where they say happy birthday with no punctuation warms my heart. <laughs> not in iota, <laughs> you know,
2: <laughs> not one Kelvin. No, no one <laughs> you can cannot. turn off the notification for your birthday and then you won't get any of that. Yeah, no. that's or you that's can delete your Facebook wonderful. account and be like Isaiah
0: i would also enjoy that that's my really only thought if oh my gosh hayden just (laughs) hayden looks so tired he just wiped his eye and rubbed his eyes and he looks like so tired and sad um well on that note folks yeah yeah brad oh Oh, dear uh, (laughs) sorry yes if you have words Um, to say yes i have
2: a, a shout out to give to uh ben Wright, one of our listeners i ran into him yesterday at a coffee shop up in cedar park he lives in leander uh came up to me recognized our Logo on my polo, and so uh, it was cool. It's cool to talk to him, get get some feedback from him, and um, hear what he you know cares about in Texas politics. And so, uh, if anyone runs into us in the real world,
0: say hi. Do that. Yes, Ben Wright is his name. Ben Wright. Well, Ben, thank you for listening. That's so awesome. Sometimes it feels like we're you know siphoned off in a room speaking to ourselves alone, which is true. But it, sometimes we forget this actually goes out into the world and people listen to it.
1: That well, exactly. Ben is right they're listening
0: to us i was i knew there was going to be a pun involved in poor ben's name hey i do my name all the time so there you go that's true daniel friend what a friend you are well on that note folks thanks for listening we will catch you next week thank you all so much for listening if you've been enjoying our podcast it would be awesome if you would review us on itunes and if there's a guest you'd love to hear on our show give us a shout on twitter tweet at the texan news We're so proud to have you standing with us as we seek to provide real journalism in an age of disinformation. We're paid for exclusively by readers like you, so it's important we all do our part to support the Texan by subscribing and telling your friends about us. God bless you, and God bless Texas.